You're listening to 100 p.m. at Leading the Product, Australia's premier product management conference. Episode 7. One hundred PM is the fastest growing resource for learning to think and do like an expert product manager. Visit us on the web and be sure to subscribe to our show by searching One Hundred PM on iTunes or Google Play. For more information about today's episode, head over to One Hundred Product Managers dot com slash Leading the Product. Today's guest is Saeed Khan. Let's dive right in and say hello to Saeed. My name is Saeed Khan. I work for Transformation Labs. It's a company that I founded, and we help companies with their product outcomes and product teams and generally help them improve their product organizations. And you and I have something in common, which is we're from Canada. We're two Canadians in Australia right now. That's right. We're far away from home. What's your experience of Australia been like so far? Uh, It's been great, actually. I landed in Brisbane. We went to Melbourne. We had the conference there, and now we're in Sydney. The only thing I'll say is that... uh, it hasn't been as sunny as I was promised. It's been <laughs> rather rainy while I've been here. But you're in Toronto. Yes. I think it's snowing there, isn't it? Or there was threats. There, there's, there's threats, yeah. Threats. But, that you know, threats of snow are fine. It's true. It's true. It rained a lot in Melbourne, I noticed. Yeah, and so, Brisbane was three solid days of rain. Oh, gosh. Well, Sydney's been impressive. Sydney's been gorgeous. Yeah, well, let's never leave Sydney. Now we know. Sydney feels like Toronto. I'll just say that. So I, I felt very comfortable here. Now, you weren't always in Canada. You left Canada to go and do the Silicon Valley thing. It's so mysterious sounding, I think, for people who have never been to the Valley. But then if you go to the Valley, you're like, oh, so it's like a weird suburb with strip malls. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. I had traveled a lot to the Bay Area from Canada for work. And then we back before the dot-com bust, we had decided to move down there. And it's funny, it's sort of like the reality versus the fiction. So the the fiction was, this is an amazing place and everything is so different and and everyone's so smart. And I got there and we literally landed in March of 2000, which is when the NASDAQ peaked and then started going down. And then all of a sudden I looked around and go, wow, it's just like home. But as you said, strip malls and it's, there's, you know, the shininess that I expected wasn't there. Yeah. Yeah, and it's still not. It's a bizarre place. It's a bizarre place. Although I did very geeky, touristy things. Like I went to One Infinite Loop, which is the address of Apple's head office, and I had a picture taken. I don't know why, but it's just, you know, the coolest address at the time. (laughs) Um, Was that a good move for your career, leaving Canada, being part of the, the U.S. tech scene? Would you recommend that for someone? So I'll answer the first part first, which is, I think for me, it was really good. The technology ecosystem in Toronto at the time, so this is the late 90s, was very small. I had had a number of friends who had moved down there and, you know, lots of good stories. And then uh, I got to do things and meet people that I could never have done in Canada. So taking that experience back was great. Things have changed a lot since then. Since Uh, November 2017, (laughs) approximately. Well, I moved back in uh, 2006. Yeah. So I think if I was younger, I would consider it again, but I would would probably approach it differently. I would really look at it more strategically. Where do I want to get to? We kind of went down. I got a job in a startup and that was, you know, wow, I got a job in a startup. But I probably should have been a little more deliberate about which startup and what kind of startup I was looking at and so on. That's interesting. Tell us about that. Like, if we could go back in time and chart your career with more rigor, 
<laughs> what would you what would you do? What would you tell young Sayid not to do? No, that's a great question. Um, so one of the things I've learned over the last 20 years in product management, and I would apply it to myself back then, is play the long game. So really have a clear vision of where do you want to be five, 10 years from now, and then make those choices very deliberately. You know, one, one thing that I didn't do, and I probably should have do, is I, I looked for interesting work, which, you know, at the time was, what could I never do in Canada? But I made some, I took some risks with some companies, and it didn't work out as expected. And so... I would have made a little more deliberate choice and maybe said, okay, here's the path I want. And maybe a job from now or two jobs from now, I'll get to that really great place. And it's always risky, but, but you know, people respect name brands. So, you know, you see, there's all these people on LinkedIn who say X Google, X Facebook, X Twitter, it's this. And somehow people think that makes them much better. Maybe they did great work, maybe they didn't. But I think I would have picked a couple of name brand companies before taking risks with some unknown startups. Yeah. How long did you work as a product manager before you stepped into your first product leadership role? It depends what you define as product leadership. But I, I think once I started managing people, it was, it was probably, I, I was a product manager in Canada for a few years and I was in California. So about five years of product management work. And then I started managing people as a team. What changes? What changes from being a product manager to being a manager of product people? Well, it's, it's, I think it's not specific to product management. I think it's a general management outlook, right? So first of all, it's, you know, it's, you turn me to we, right? You're, you're thinking more broadly. You're thinking more in terms of forward, what's important. And, and, and I think I was much more closely aligned with the business as opposed to when you're a product manager. And at least early on, I was very product focused and it's all about my product. Whereas later on, it's, it's about the bigger picture. And then people mention is always interesting. I once worked for someone and in fact, it was my first boss when I was a product manager and he was great. He was like, I don't know if you remember Wall Street, but the Hal Holbrook character who kind of shepherds Charlie Sheen around and gives him words of advice. He was kind of like that. And he, he, he had all these little mantras that he would share. And then, you know, it, it seems obvious, but he would talk about, you know, the employees as like chess. It's not checkers. You're not all the same. And I know what you're good at and I know what you're not good at. And we, we move forward and then I'll help you get better. And it was, it was just very interesting to hear that. And then when I started managing people, that always stuck in my mind, like really get to know them and their strengths and their weaknesses, as opposed to focusing on just outcomes. You have a talk here at the conference, which I want to hear more about, but you also came in and taught a workshop. Yes. Workshop was on metrics. Yeah. Did it have a fancy title? No, no, it was just <laughs> not super metrics fancy. With it, yeah, metrics with Saeed, exactly. <laughs> uh, it was it was driving product decisions through metrics. I probably could have had a fancier title, but I was trying to just keep it very simple. Just want to uh, tell people exactly what they're going to get. Yeah, the thing that I was trying to convey is that so as product management folk, a lot of our focus seems to be on product, and you you read about what people are writing and you, you know, it's sort of product, 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 product. And yet in the word product management, management is the thing you're doing. Product is the modifier. We're managing product. And so I've always been a little, just a little concerned that we don't spend enough time focusing on the management side of things. And what does that really mean? Because in the end, that's where the success comes from. Like you can build a product, but if you don't manage it well, you can't succeed. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think what I'm hearing you say or how I frame that is 
So I talk a lot about the different roles of the product manager, kind of that like business owner role, that designer role, that yeah. developer role, and not yeah. role, but, but mindset. Yeah. And so that's kind of part of it. And then the other part of it is that the levels at which we operate from those roles dial up and dial down, depending where we are in, in a specific kind of design or delivery cycle. Sure. But that steady state is, in theory, the place where we get to be balanced yes. and we get to be thinking about all those things. It sounds a little bit like what you're saying is we're like always in that design delivery mode or, or we're hyper obsessed with the, the work yeah. around that. Yeah, I, I think so. I think I think I think it's easy. First of all, it's in, in the title product. Right. And then a lot of the, the focus, obviously, is you know no one else is going to work with the product team. And so it's very easy to just get involved and say, we're going to get the best user interface and the best experience and our product will be rock solid and all these things. And yet there's so many other aspects to product success that don't have to do specifically with the product. Right? And, you know, basic things like how you position, how you message, how you differentiate, who you target, how you organize and align in your company to move things forward. Like all these other aspects of, you know, elements of success should be focused on. And I've seen, you know, average products, you know, good products, but not the best, do quite well. And on the other hand, I've seen what seem like really good products do poorly simply because they just didn't do those other things, right? So it's, it's I, think, I think we're technology focused, overly so. I think it's rampant in Silicon Valley. <laughs> I, actually, if I can tell a little story, when I lived in California, I went to the Computer History Museum in, in Mountain View, and there was a talk, and it was... Um, it was called 20 Years in the Valley. And there were three like early founders. And I forget who two of them were, but one guy was an early guy to electronic arts. And there was Scott Cook from Intuit. And they gave their talks. And, and it was so clear that Scott's perspective was very different than the other two. And Scott was formerly a product manager at Procter & Gamble. And then he found Intuit and built Quicken. And he told the origin story of Quicken. And and he talked about, you know, their customer obsession, how they were so focused on making sure that the product was really easy to use. And this is, you know, on a, as he described it, on an 80 by 24 monochrome character display, you know, sort of way, way back in, 80, in the early 80s. And I, I just asked him a question. I said, you know, you, Intuit is an unbelievably successful company. It's, you, you guys are very open about how you function and what you do. And you have all these things like the Follow Me Home program to really understand what customers want. Why is that not filtered through to the rest of the valley? Like, it seems like a really good formula for success. And he, he kind of stopped. He said, you know, first of all, I'm not a technologist. I didn't come from a technology background. I had a team of developers, and I, I worked with them. And he said, but most companies are started by technologists, right? And, and I think their approach was very different from mine. And he said, not that mine is better or mine was better, but it's just a natural progression. If you come from a technology background, you do things a certain way. And for me, my background was at, at Procter & Gamble. So I always, I always remembered that sort of mindset, which is like, he's not a technical guy, and yet he built a huge successful company. And, and that's the, the way I always like to think. All the non-technical founders listening in are rejoicing, just <laughs> hearing this anecdote. Well, I, I hope Scott Cook is listening. <laughs> when he, I hope Scott Cook is listening too, actually, Scott, if you could, and then retweet this. Yes. Um, if you were to come into an organization that was just like metrics, never heard of them. Yeah. How would you start to establish a process around there? Like, like uh, I think it would be interesting to just get super tactical for a moment in 
how do you start to stand them up? Where do the metrics begin? Yeah. And how do you do that in a way that's um, achievable so that you're not drowning under the pressure of... Sure. So I think every company has some metrics, whether they know admit it or not, right? So, you know, the, the one metric almost every company has is revenue. Yeah. Right? It's something they do measure and track, or if it's very early, they might talk about customers. You know, we, we have something we're measuring against. But I think to kind of get more sophisticated, the way I would talk about it is I wouldn't talk about metrics, first of all. I would talk about outcomes and what are the outcomes that we're looking for, right? And, and yes, maybe they're going, well, the outcome is we want more revenue, <laughs> but, but there's, there's a way you can decompose that. Okay, so what does that mean? How are we going to get more revenue? Oh, well, we're going to target this or we're going to go geographically here or we're going to do certain things. Okay, great. So those are the outcomes you want to achieve. And so how are you going to... How are you going to drive there and how are you going to measure that those outcomes happen? Because not all of them are as cut and dried as dollars yeah. or, or, or whatever currency you're using. So I, I think I would start there. It's really a, a cultural shift that you have to go through and sort of help people work towards. And then once you can kind of help them see these small wins, then you can help change them to sort of, okay, now we can be a bit more rigorous and let's Let's see, well, why did we not achieve our target? Oh, well, we didn't do this over here. How could we measure that and make sure we don't do it next time? And so then, you know, people, it's an awareness issue and a cultural issue. And then people go, oh, okay, this, this actually makes sense. So that, that's the way I would approach it. Is, it's, I, I found always it's easy, easier, it's not always easy, it's easier to align people on projected outcomes because you can see, yeah, that, we, we all agree, we want to do this. And then how you get to it is a different question, but you're aligned at least in the, in the practice of what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, I mean, I think that this raises such an important, it's a simple idea around data, which is the collection of data and the analysis of data begins with a question or series of questions about what you want to know. Exactly. And that's the, the conversation. Like, yes. You want to know when people come to the site what do they do next? That's right. Yeah. In, in fact, in the, in the workshop, I give a definition, kind of a formal definition of metric, and then I give Saeed's definition, and I, I change that formal definition, and that's exactly what I say. I say, you know, a metric is the answer to an important question that helps you decide what you want to do, all right, or how you want to, how you want to adjust what you're doing. And, 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 that, and that always helps people because the, the question that people have on metrics is, well, there's so many. How do I know? And so uh, what's important to you? Right. question you answered and then suddenly it, it becomes simpler yeah are there specific best practices that you think are like you have to do this you have to have these metrics or you have to have these tools or you have to have this approach to creating a tagging plan or this approach to uh, defining outcomes in your roadmap yeah i'll be honest I, best practices come from sort of widespread usage and then, you know, measurement of what works and what doesn't work. And I, I can't say that I've done that. So I don't want to say this is a best practice or that's a best practice. But I will say there are better ways of doing things clearly than others. I used to joke in my first product manager job, and, and, and this is another thing, the very first job I had was great because it was very holistic in terms of product and technology and business and so on. But there are three product managers and we had each had a separate product line. And um, we always joked that it's so funny how no matter what the sales target is, the company meets it. But if one product did better that quarter, 
another product did worse. And so we say, you know, a, product A plus product B plus product C is a constant, right? And, and, and the idea was like, wow, someone was so smart that they predicted exactly within $1,000 how much we'd sell. No, of course, that's not true. It's we set a target and we work towards a target and we achieve the target. And so you take that analogy from sales, which nobody argues about, and then you start applying it in other areas. Say, okay, if we want certain outcomes, then let's set some targets and work towards them. And then we can always measure our progress, hopefully, towards that target, right? It's not always as cut and dry as sales, but it works. And, and, and you know, once people start thinking about that, you know, yeah. And, and, and compared to 20 years ago, things are much more objective focused and, and target focused than they were. You know, back then it was just, you did stuff. You know, yeah. is the checklist checked off? Yes. Okay, great. You know, we're done. You know, I, I think we're beyond that today. You have a talk here at the conference. Yes. It's got a fun name. What is it? Don't release the Kraken. <laughs> Can you give us the little nuggets of wisdom? Just just the Coles sure. notes for the, yeah, the Coles. folks that didn't make yeah. it all the way down here. You, you do know that in Australia, Coles is a grocery store. <laughs> I also um, realize, you know, because I live in Los Angeles, yeah that uh, no one knows what Coles is there yeah, either. Yeah. So I have to, uh, Cliff's Notes, I Cliff's guess. No, the, in the US, yeah, Coles is Canadian, right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. And yeah. it never occurred to me yeah. until I was saying it. Yeah. But there's been a few things that I've said that, down in the US that I'm like, like process. Yes. But everyone says process here. Yes. Because we're back amongst the I people. actually asked that in my, in my class. I said, what do you say? Because when I was in the US, when I lived there, I would say process. And I would get either two responses. One, one of them was, it's process. Or the other one was, you're Canadian, aren't you? <laughs> um, and you're like, sorry. Yeah. 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 Uh, so essentially, when you think of sort of planning what you're going to build, and, and, you know, things have changed since 20 years ago, and, you know, we're agile, and some people don't plan as much. But but when, when, when companies are working on major releases, and I'm, I'm talking about not just ISVs, but enterprises who are building, you know, usually really sophisticated applications where they might be under some contractual obligation to build something. Um, it, it's still a challenge. You know, no one's going to build everything at once and they have to prioritize and they have to decide how to allocate resources and there's always competing interests. And, and what I've seen is over the years, you know, people are pretty good. They're a lot better at once they've decided what to build, they're pretty good at, at doing that, you know, minus some unknowns or hiccups and things like that. But that decision process up front is still quite rampant with inefficiency and politics and all this stuff. So, and I've always found it kind of odd that as product managers, our job is to analyze problems and understand what the solution should be and then make it easy for someone else to you know, do their job, you know, whatever, whatever product you're selling. And yet we haven't been as good as doing, at doing that for ourselves. And, and this idea of planning releases, like, why is it still so political and so chaotic? So essentially, I just kind of took those same skills. I applied to other things, applied it to this problem that I have. And, you know, I'm selfish. I want my life to be better. And if I can make it better, great. And if I can make it better for someone else, even better. And just apply it to release and just kind of tried to simplify it into something that is very clear and cut and dried. And it's not the ultimate solution, but at least, you know, it's sort of the 80% rule. Like, yeah, this, this really gets us 80% of the way. And the other 20% is variable depending on your on your situation so distill the advice then for folks listening in who are, are are nodding their heads and saying yeah release release planning in my organization is chaotic it is yeah. political how can they shift that 
So the way I look at it is that when people think about a release, often they think about what features should we put in? And that's where their discussion starts. And, and then they, they go, okay, how should we prioritize these features? And, and that's kind of starting at the end in a way, because a release actually is based on some directive or some roadmap or some objective that you have, right? So something higher level. And that roadmap, if you're thinking of a product roadmap, that's based on a product strategy, right? So the way I talk about roadmap is a roadmap is a product-centric articulation of a product strategy because a product strategy is more than just what you're going to build. But that strategy comes from product objectives. And that objective flows out of product vision, right? So, you know, there's this cascading effect and things like product vision and product objectives are sort of longer term and release are shorter term. So you have a framework already if you think about objectives and, and roadmap and things to, to narrow down what, what you're going to build in a release. And so that's the first step that people should understand is it, it doesn't start with what should we put in the release. It starts with the bigger picture. And, and they should socialize that with the other stakeholders, if it's an ISV, it's sales and marketing and, and other people, so that the context is common across the groups. And then, and, and get the other people's context in as well. But now you're kind of talking about the same thing. You're not thinking, oh, I'm a product manager, I'm thinking long-term strategy, and I'm a sales rep, I, I need something next quarter. And then once you get there and you say, okay, we have a common understanding of kind of this framework of thinking about it, and we can eliminate some things that we're not gonna do, then you have to get into how do we do the tactical work that defines what's in the release? And then there's just a bunch of things like who are the stakeholders? What are our targets in terms of timelines? What's the core functionality we have and why? And that should align with those higher level things. What are the risks, et cetera? And, and you have that discussion. And, and the, again, it's about this common understanding and framework and then saying, we, yes, we have had a very conscious and clear discussion and we can come to an agreement. And then, you know, what happens then is, okay, you started down the right path, you build what you have to build, and when you come to, to, to launching it and making it available, it's not a case of, oh, this is not the right thing, we need to change it, right? You, you've done all that hard work up front, and, and, and you're not building for 12 months or 18 months, you know, you're building for a short period, but still, you, you've, you've eliminated that you know, I call it the beast, like there's this product that's going out and no one's going to be happy with it, and when it goes out, it's going to cause damage. That's the Kraken That's you don't want. So don't release the Kraken. Process in general is is interesting. I mean, I, I'd love to get your perspective because there's a time when you can afford to be flat and chaotic and, and not scalable in the way that things are getting done tactically. And then there's a time when that starts to hurt. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about where where you see that showing up like where when and where in a company's life cycle does the need for process start to show up and what are some of the processes that you think are most important for product organizations to adopt so let's start with this there is one process that everybody has whether they think about it or not it's it's that development process and product managers just it's not our process it's engineering process but we we adapt to it so from the very earliest days in a startup there's process, right? People don't think about it maybe, but it exists. So it's kind of funny because people often hear the word process and go, oh, like, yeah. I better keep, quit. Yeah, I don't want any of that. And so it's not to say you need process from day one, but it's there whether you think of it or not. 
And and in the early days, you know, when you're small, and, and when I say small, it's say less than 30 people. Everyone knows everyone. The communication lines are open. You're all aligned. Hopefully, if you're not aligned, that's a problem. But you're all aligned, and you know what you're doing, and you just move forward as a kind of a, a unit, and everyone goes out of the way to, you know, make sure that the gaps are filled. And so you don't have a formal process because people know what to do and people know who to talk to and, and th there's no gaps. But as the company grows, as you kind of get sort of larger and when everyone doesn't know everyone and those communication lines aren't clear, then you start needing some structure to kind of fill those gaps. And in my experience, somewhere between 50 and 100 people is when it happens. So my very first product manager job, I joined, there were 70 people. It didn't take me long to recognize everyone. I didn't know everyone what they exactly did, but I recognized every face and I probably knew 50 out of 70 people. When we got to about 100, I was like, oh, when did that person start? Where did this, what did they do? You know, so, so that's when you start needing some structure because it's not just for the old people who are there, it's for the new people to come in and be able to work effectively. So I think that's one, one thing to think about is just, as you grow, you need to formalize that. And then in terms of product management process, I think we're, we shouldn't think ourselves any different than any other group. Every other group, they have, you know, there's clear sales methodology and process. Engineering will put rigor on what they're doing, et cetera. So why aren't we doing it? And, and just because a lot of our work is more soft skills or creative, it doesn't mean we can't at least have frameworks and kind of structure what we do better. Yeah, I mean, so the, the release planning process that you spoke about, I yes. think, is an example of one that yeah. a product manager could begin to implement or advocate for. Are there others that, that you think are just like, hey, if, look, yeah. if you're a PM listening in here yeah. and you don't have a process for how you do X, like, yeah. get on that. Yeah. So I, I think there's five or six fundamental processes that we we do, right? So at the highest level, you can call it product strategy and, plan, and, and sort of portfolio management. So... Another one is product discovery and new product identification. Um, there's the sort of development process that we work with development on, and that's there. I think launch is another one that's really important. I mean, we don't necessarily, as product managers, always own it. In larger companies, it's product marketing and other groups, but it's critical to product success. There's what happens after launch, and I don't know what to call I just call that post-launch. <laughs> but... We should be monitoring and we should be managing the products and making sure that things are going right and, you know, trying to adjust. And it could be organizational issues or other things. And then there's end of life. So those are kind of the five or six. And those fundamentally, in my opinion, define what we do. And if you're doing something that's way different than that, then you're probably not doing product management at that point. So I think those things should be well understood. They should be defined and they should be repeatable at minimum. At minimum, you know, if you run a beta program, and then someone else runs a beta program, their beta program should not be crazy different than yours. You know, you should have that structure. You should know what metrics you're using. You should understand how to, you know, get beta participants and get the feedback, et cetera. What about the, the reporting cadence, right? Because I think to tie this back to metrics for a moment and, and outcomes, really, there's definitely a habit of setting goals at key milestones, like the way that everyone goes to back to the gym on January 2nd. <laughs> and it's kind of like, okay, it's, it's, we're in Q4. We got to plan for 2019. Oh, yeah. we got to do whatever. Yeah. Oh, you know, oh, we just did a roadmap. We've, we've set up a bunch of key results and outcomes that we want. Yeah. And then people 
forget, yeah. stop talking about it. I mean, how often should we as product people be reporting on our key metrics? It depends on where the product is in the life cycle. Early on, you're really tracking things very closely. But I think at minimum, on a quarterly basis, you're looking at the health of your product and you're understanding what's happening. I mean, in, in a lot of products, I won't say it's everyone, but a lot of them things, things don't change day to day. One day you're great, the next day you're bad or even weekly. But if you're thinking of like a strategic kind of analysis and, and review, minimum every quarter, just to say, okay, how are we doing? What's changed? What things do we need to look at? You know, are we, are we okay on, on the people side or on the, on the, on the organizational side or, or go to market and things like that? And then that's kind of the way I look at it is that's more of a holistic thing. But then you're obviously reacting to market changes as they happen. So I worked in a company in Toronto and Citrix bought out a small virtualization player and I forget their name. And all of a sudden, this virtualization player that we were ignoring suddenly could not be ignored anymore because Citrix had entered the market. And so we adjusted our plan. But those things, they don't happen every day either. So as you go along, you make those adjustments and then you decide how to move forward. Tell us about Transformation Labs. What, um, how do you create value for your customers? Okay. So Transformation Labs, it's, it's, it's a business. It's myself and my business partner, Lee Bonnell. He's had over a dozen years of enterprise product management experience. He worked at BlackBerry and PTC and some other software companies. And BlackBerry, what's that? <laughs> Just kidding. It, it, it's what the iPhone was before the iPhone. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah Canadian company for those who might not have heard of it. But, and then prior, prior to that, he had a lot of enterprise sales experience and worked at HP. And so we were actually friends from university way, way back. And so we had this sort of parallel sort of path. And uh, so we, we decided it's time to take all this experience and start applying it, helping other companies. So fundamentally what we do is we help software and technology companies create better product outcomes. So this could be new product identification or product success or organizational change for product teams. So sort of anything that's product related, sort of help them out and, and sort of move them forward. And oftentimes companies have, you know, they've been around for a while, but now they, they've gotten to a stage where they're trying to scale. So they, they, they have a business and they're trying to scale. And if you're scaling, it's a different world. And so sort of helping them make the organizational change and, and whatever they have to do to scale their business. So do you do you just sort of come in and then, you know, observe and prescribe, or do you kind of roll up your sleeves and immerse yourselves for a period of time? So both, although it depends. So if, if they have the staff, then we'll work alongside them and help them and maybe guide them. If they don't have the staff, then we'll come in. So I spent three months earlier this year as, as acting head of product in a, in a company in Toronto, and then part of the job was to find my own replacement. Yeah. And so, you know, there was recruiters and we, we, you know, we interviewed and we, I think actually took four months, but we found someone. And then my, my goal at that company really, you know, I, I, I was describing as that when I joined and when I sort of went there, they were in a bit of disarray for a number of reasons. So my strategy was stabilize, organize, and then optimize. And I did the stabilize and I did the organize. And by the time the new head of product came in and it was his job to take it forward and optimize it. So that, that's the kind of thing that we normally do. Yeah, no, it's very, very similar to the, the work I do at the development factory and, and yeah, big believer in the sustainable insourcing part at the end, right? Yeah. So it's like the benefit of bringing in a consultant is 
high performance, can drop sort of right in, can quickly understand context and reduce a lot of the friction and cost. But then there is a time where if you're committed to being a product organization, you have to you yeah. can't just lean on that. Plus, you'd get bored if you were solving the same problem for too long. Yeah. Well, it was a really interesting company to work at. I didn't have a problem there. It was it was, it was actually a 10-year-old software company. Really good people. A lot of heroics going on, though, to get things done. What I didn't like was the commute. It was, it was an hour and a half commute. <laughs> so, Where was it? It was in downtown Toronto. But I, I live out. Oh, you live out in I'm, I'm not. I'm not in the center. And Don Valley parking lot, they call that. Yeah, yeah. See, no one will get that reference. That's okay. You, you know what? Yeah. This is for us. That's for us. Okay, this is great. for us. And, and the, our thousands of listeners as well. But some of them are from Canada. Okay. We do a segment on the show, say, called Get the Job, Learn the Job, Love the Job. So what advice would you offer to, you already told us what you would tell young Saeed. Um, any other advice that you would offer for someone who wants to get into product management? So they've already worked backwards from the, with the end in mind. They yeah. know what they want their career to look like 10 years from now, yeah. but they're like, no one will let me get that first step. Yeah. How do I do it? So I'll relate how I got my first product management job, which when I look back, it was kind of, I'm surprised they hired me. Um, <laughs> So we have to go way back. It was 1997. I was working in a startup in Toronto. We were doing um, real-time data visualization, like 3D data visualization software, which was so cool, but there was no market. <laughs> and I was responsible for, uh, it was called manager of customer, customer education. So I had customer support, uh, documentation, and training under me. So I was very close to customers. Like we trained every one of them. They'd come in, and I understood our domain and our product. And we had a product manager, and that product manager essentially did whatever the engineering manager wanted. And I, I, want, I, I realized, man, I know customers better than him. I want to do that. And so I, I tried to move into that role in that company, and it wasn't possible, so I started looking. And then lo and behold, a few months later, I saw an ad in the newspaper, which is so ancient by today's standards. And it was like product manager, and it was a decent-sized ad, and it was in a software company in Toronto. And uh, it was called, the company was called Kale Group, and, but they, they made charting software. So, you know, we had visualization, this was charting, development tools on both sides. And, and I was like, that's my job. And so for me, I was like, I can see myself in that job. How do I make them see me in that job? And so I started trying to understand what do they do and why would they want someone? And I'll be honest, I mean, I had essentially analogous domain knowledge. And I think that was one of the big key factors, right? That I understood what they did. They actually knew our company very well. We weren't competitors. We had a class library. They were uh, development tools, you know, development components. So that was a good fit. And then it turns out I didn't realize it, but I knew one of the product managers at the company. And so I had an, a bit of an inside reference, but I didn't realize it until the first day I went to work. I was like, oh, Lee, you work here. And it wasn't Lee, my business partner, it was another Lee. But so, you know, what I took away from that was, you know, it's one thing to say I can do the job, but from their perspective, what are they looking for? And, and the things like domain experience is critical, you know, communication skills. They, they gave me a written test back then. I had to write some essays and I was like, okay, no problem. I, I used to be a technical writer, but then, you know, it was, I think, fit. And that was the big thing. I remember the CEO asking me some questions about how I would resolve disputes and things like that. And apparently I heard later on, like, 
what I said really resonated with him because that's how he believed it. So this combination of a fit and things like domain knowledge and skill sets are all important. And I would say for people who are entering the market today, you know, it's kind of this conundrum, like you can't get a product manager job unless you have product managing experience. And in fact, they asked me that question. They said, well, you've never been a product manager. Why should we hire you? And, and in a way I was like, well, who's been a product manager? It's 1997. <laughs> um, but I, I just said, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. In fact, I've done most of what a product manager will do, just not in one job. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and I think that's the way you have to look at it is how do you, how much overlap, how can you fit what you've done and, and, and sometimes you may have to make a transition. Maybe you get a job, maybe you're an engineer and you get a job in the company and learn the domain and the knowledge and then move into product management or something like that. Yeah, well, and customer success is a great domain yes. to sort of pivot from, yes. right? Because like you say, you, you're you on the front lines with the people and you learn a lot. And Absolutely. You know, we've heard that story on this show before from yeah. folks who've, who've come in that way. What about uh, hard lessons learned? So, you know, you come into a lot of organizations and kind of help coach and guide, as you yeah. say, where do you see product managers not really doing it so well in practice? Yeah. So one of the things is, you know, you lead by influence and, and you have to work collaboratively with people. You have to have empathy and it's not just empathy for the customer. You have to understand what others in the company are trying to do. And what I've seen where it fails is when product managers come in and think, well, I'm the boss or, you know, I get to tell people what to do. I once interviewed someone and I said, why do you like being a product manager? And he literally said, because I get to tell people what to do. And I was just kind of like, I don't know what you've been working at, but that's not product management. And so I think where you you're, you don't work in that collaborative way and, and lead, you know, you direct and, and you'll never be successful there. You know, there's always more engineers than there are product managers and boy, their influence will, will gang up on you pretty quickly. So I think the real thing is to, to understand you are a, leader by influence, you work collaboratively, you have to have empathy for what's going on, and you have to be able to communicate a vision for the future that people can get behind, right? Often it's like, well, here's what we need to build. Why? Well, because that's what I wrote. Now, show a path forward, make sure you have credibility, and people will align with you. And I think if you if you can do those things, you can be successful. And if you can't do those things, then there's always 10 other people that will fill in the gap. Do you love it still? I mean, you've been doing this a long time. You you aged yeah. yourself, not me. <laughs> yes. Do you still feel as excited about the world of product? I I do. Why? <laughs> you know, I, I gave a talk last year and uh, the, the guy who introduced me, he said, oh, Saeed's going to give this talk and he's been doing product management for about 20 years and he has lots of experience to share. And so I gave my talk and then uh, half the questions were about the talk and half the questions were about how long I'd been in product management. <laughs> and someone said to me, they said, you've been doing this so long, could you do anything else? <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's a very existential question. Maybe I can't, maybe I like it because there's nothing else I can do. Um, I think for me, I, I studied physics in university, right? And, and I took math electives, like I don't know why, in computer science, like it's, I have that analytic background, but then I became a technical writer and I love writing. And then, you know, I worked with customers and, and I've done all these different types of things. And this is the one job where everything comes together. And it's always a job where I'm learning. And I love that. And, you know, imposter syndrome, yes, sometimes, but it's, it's ever changing. So I, I really think that for me, this is kind of the good blend of all the things I like. And, and there's always something new. 
So that for me, I think that's why I, I still love it. I love that answer. Do you have any recommended resources that we can add to our site? So at 100productmanagers.com slash resources, we have a growing list of books, blogs, podcasts. They don't have to be product specific, just no. anything that, that was impactful to you that you want to share along. So I, I, I'll be honest, I've, I've kind of, because of my kids, my, my, I have three kids in university and, and they're all studying some aspect of biology. And I studied physics. So I'm, I'm getting my science kind of nerd back through them. And I said to them, I said, if I went back to school today, I would study biology because it is so fascinating and it's changing and it's dynamic. And I, I think that, you know, when I went to university and again, I'm going to now date myself, but physics was a hard science, like hard, meaning like very analytic. Chemistry was analytic and biology was birds and trees and things like that. And we, we, we used to kind of make fun of biology and now biology is is the place to be if you're in science. So I, I, I tend to read things that I can share with my my kids. So I don't have any specific websites. I usually just go do searches and I go, oh, you know, there's science news as a site. And then I'll go there and I'll look and I'll see what's happening in biology and then I'll share, I'll find a link to somewhere else. So that doesn't really help product managers though. <laughs> what can product managers learn from biology? So I, I think, and we're still early, but this is the next field of productization. So the kinds of analytics and the kinds of um, insights that we're getting from biology are gonna allow people to take the science and turn it into technology. And we're starting to see very early examples of that. So when you look at vaccinations, right? So everyone, we all got needles and things like that. And now they're looking at targeted immunity therapies that are specific to individuals based on their genome, right? There's ways that they're thinking about, you know, taking things in biology and turning them into something. So there's research into batteries. So, you know, big problem with batteries is yes, you can store lots of energy, but discharging it actually takes time. And so if you want to build large scale batteries, it's very difficult to do because when you need power, you need it now. You don't need a slow trickle. To, and so they're looking at how plants and take energy from the sun and then release it internally. And they're looking at that technology and saying, can we build analogous batteries? Because those mechanisms in the plants can actually discharge very quickly. So that's the kind of thing that fascinates me because it's taking something from the natural world, understanding it at a very sort of specific level, and then productizing it. So it gets back, everything comes back to product. You can't help yourself. <laughs> I think your friends are right about you. All right, last question for you. Is there a side of the mug quote or mantra that you use to kind of guide you in the world personally or professionally? There's a few, but if I think of what I use with my kids and the, the ones they always grown about, because the one that I always come back to is nail it, then scale it. And I've kind of used it over the years in different contexts, but fundamentally from a product perspective, it's where, you know, whatever you're doing, get it right on a small scale, really understand it, and then take out all the efficiencies you can, and then scale it up. And this applies to product, it applies to business, it applies to things I do personally, and, and you know, it kind of rolls off your tongue, so it's, it's easy to remember. Yeah, I mean, I actually, you have a t-shirt of that? Your I, I have a mug. <laughs> you do. I, I do. That's amazing. <laughs> so, awesome. Nail it, then scale it. Yeah. yeah, that's practical advice. Yeah. 
Saeed Khan, all the way from Toronto, down in Australia. Thank you so much for being a great traveling partner and, and for joining us here on the show. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank you for listening to 100 PM, the official podcast for 100productmanagers.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe in the Apple Store, at Google Play, or on Stitcher, and leave us a great review to help other listeners discover us more easily. If you want to get in touch directly, email me, Suzanne, at 100productmanagers.com, or visit us on the web 